So after our time last week, looking at a couple of disciples that we had not previously met, this week we return to the group of disciples we are more familiar with. These are members of the inner circle, those that were closest to Jesus, sometimes referred to as the Twelve. Now though all of them are not present, we do find Peter and James and John, Thomas, Nathaniel, and, and even a couple of unnamed others get thrown in there as well. And apparently they're still trying to figure out what the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection are supposed to mean for them. The Gospel writer tells us this is the third appearance to this group of disciples. So we can guess that we are at least a week out from that first Easter morning when the women discovered the empty tomb and then Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. And then it was later that same day that we had the story that we read about last week with the disciples on their way home to Emmaus. And then it was on that same first Easter evening that Jesus first appeared to his inner circle as they were in hiding in Jerusalem. Well, all of them except for Thomas on that first day. We know that a week later he again appeared to that group of disciples when Thomas was present. And so we can safely assume that this story that we have today takes place after that. Now Peter, both impulsive and clueless as ever at times, just decides, I'm going to go fishing. Our gospel writer doesn't go into much detail, but we might guess that he's really just not certain what else it is he's supposed to be doing right now. And so Peter returns to things that he can understand. He has fished all his life. The sons of Zebedee were his partners in fishing, and we can guess that some of the other disciples were fishermen as well. And so they decide to go out and do something that they're familiar with during this time of uncertainty. And the abruptness of this transition in the story suggests this was just something that Peter just is like on a whim. You know what? I'm going fishing. He just decides to go and the other disciples are like, yeah, whatever. We'll go too. We'll tag along. And it's something he's done his whole life. Maybe it's something he finds soothing. Maybe this is something familiar that he feels like he can just go out and do as a way of just letting his mind just kind of drift. So he doesn't have to try and focus and think too much about what do we do with the fact that Jesus is still walking around and talking to us? We're not really sure what to do with that. Or maybe like some people today, maybe he just really needed a day out on the lake with some friends. And it's kind of odd, but the way this story happens, it made me think of Harry Potter. And there's a scene in the very final uh, movie of the Harry Potter series where Voldemort has just cast a killing curse on Harry, and Harry finds himself in kind of this spotless, gleaming train station. And he's not really sure what's going on. He's a bit confused. He's like, well, it looks like a train station, but it's really clean. Um, and then he winds up having this conversation with Dumbledore. And Harry probably assumes he's dead. You know, after all, Dumbledore had been killed several months before. And so this is really not making any sense to him. And yet here they are conversing, and Dumbledore continues to offer wisdom to Harry, as he always had done when he was alive. 
He tells Harry how proud he is of him and of all the things he's accomplished. And then he suggests that Harry has a choice. He can move on. He can wait for a train and catch that and move on to whatever it is that comes next. Or he can return and finish what he had started. And some of you may know Harry makes the decision that he's going to go back and finish those things that he had started, even knowing that that was going to probably lead to some pain. But he knew that he needed to finish those things that had been started, those things that had been set in motion. And so I, I thought of that scene as I was reading this story, as we find Peter in this moment of indecision. He really doesn't know what to make of these appearances that Jesus has made to them. Jesus has now appeared to them twice since his resurrection. And in those appearances, he's continued to teach them. But Peter is at a loss. I'm sure he's feeling his own sense of doubts, his own doubts and his ability, his own inability to continue that ministry that Jesus had started with them. And he's probably feeling a bit guilty as well, remembering that night that Jesus was arrested and how just a little bit earlier he'd been saying that, you know, he was willing to follow Jesus anywhere, even if it led to his own death. And then when they actually come and arrest Jesus, Peter denies him three times. And so he's carrying all this with him. And it would be so easy just to move on, to leave that pain behind and to return to something that he knows how to do. And yet, this lifelong fisherman out on a lake all night, and yet they don't have any luck. And for those of you who have been paying attention over the last few months, you may remember that back in February, I'm throwing it back there a little bit, that we had a very similar story with Peter and James and John who had just spent a night out on the lake. And as they brought their boats in and they're cleaning their nets, Jesus shows up followed by a crowd of people and they're all crowding around Jesus and they're a little too close. And so Jesus goes over to Peter and says, Peter, you know, take me out on the lake a little way so that I can speak to everyone. And so Peter humors him and takes him out there. And then after Jesus has finished speaking, he says to Peter, all right, now put your nets out here in the deeper water. And Peter winds up bringing in a haul of fish that he can't even haul in himself and he has to call over the other boats. And so here, as we approach the end of the story, we get a throwback to that first Paul story of Peter in the midst of this. We hear this echo of the story and just as Jesus was unknown to Peter when Peter was called, they don't recognize Jesus this time either. Jesus just kind of shows up on the shore and says, Hey, did you catch anything? And they said nothing. So he says, Well, hey, why don't you put your nets down on the other side of the boat? And they're probably thinking, Oh, why? Why, why didn't we think of that? And they catch so many fish that they fear that the nets are going to rip. And yet somehow Peter is still clueless. Like, don't you recognize this is what happened to you before? And instead, 
It's the disciple that Jesus loved. The disciple we're told is John, who cries out, it is the Lord. And then we get that moment of levity in the middle of there as Peter puts his clothes on to jump into the water and swim to shore. Impulsive, faithful Peter. He can't wait for the boat to be rowed to shore. He can't wait to get to Jesus. And in that moment of impulsiveness, we can see his love and his faith for Jesus in his actions. Once the boat finally makes it to shore and the others gather, Jesus invites them to share breakfast with him. With echoes of his meals with them, echoes of the Last Supper when he took bread, echoes of his feeding of the 5,000 when he takes the bread and the fish. Jesus sits down and shares bread and fish with them there on the shore. This eating with the disciples following the resurrection is a recurring theme that we've seen in almost every one of these stories. And it's important as we try and think about what this resurrection thing means to us, what it meant to those disciples. The food makes it clear that Jesus is there with them in the flesh. This is not just a ghost appearing to them. You know, ghosts don't eat. This is not some kind of zombie. I mean, zombies can't like pull themselves together enough to figure out how to start a fire and cook something over it. Jesus is there with them in the flesh, sharing their food, just as he had always done before the crucifixion. And then after they've eaten, Jesus turns to Peter so that he can have a very direct and probably very uncomfortable conversation. And in an echo of his three denials of Jesus on the night that he was arrested, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him. And then after each question, each time that Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus gives him a command. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Sometimes I think when we hear this passage and we think about who it is that Peter is in the church, the traditions that we have, I think we have a tendency to think of this as some sort of a spiritual nourishment. Peter is the first leader of the church, the rock upon whom Jesus is building his church. He is the one appointed to go forth to pastor to the early community. But when we look at this example, at the example that Jesus gives us here in the story today, the example he gives us throughout the life that he led, we find that the focus is not only on the spiritual. There's no dualism here between the body and the soul. No raising of the one over the other. In this story, Jesus offers them physical food as well as spiritual nourishment. In his life, Jesus fed those who were physically hungry as well as those who were spiritually hungry. And so he calls on Peter here to do the same. 
and it is the same for all of us who follow Christ yet today. Just as Dumbledore reminded Harry in that train station that there were still things to be done, Jesus reminds Peter here today that all that he had taught them, all that he had modeled for them in his life has a purpose. The people still have needs. The people are still hungry. Hungry not just for a relationship with God, but actually physically hungry. Spiritual nourishment by itself is not enough. For we are embodied creatures. We live and breathe in these very bodies. Bodies that feel. Bodies that get hungry. I'm reading this book right now and one of the characters had this thought and he said, all we have to believe with is our senses. The tools we use to perceive the world, our sight, our touch, our memories. It is our bodies that we live in that are important to that encounter with Jesus. That's why he continues to come back and to share meals with them. That's why he continues to come back. He offers his hands. He offers to let them touch him. To see he is really there. These bodies matter. And so we return to where we ended our time together last week. We encounter Jesus when we gather together and share a meal. And then we are called to offer the body of Christ to the rest of the world. Just as Peter was called on to feed the sheep that the great shepherd calls to, so are we as well. And not with words alone, but with physical food and physical action. Even so, this can take on many forms. Sometimes our feeding of others takes on a somewhat symbolic nature, such as the times that we gather together and worship, and we go to the table and we share in the body and blood of Christ that is in the bread and the cup. And we as the church, who are the body of Christ, offer that same body and blood to all who hear that invitation to come to the table. And sometimes we extend that feeding out as we take the bread and the cup from the table during worship out to those who are absent from our community, those who would come, those who have been a part of our community, but for whatever reason can't be with us every Sunday. Now, I know this congregation used to have that ministry, and I'm glad to say we're going to be starting that up again through this summer of taking the bread and the cup from the table after our days of communion and taking that out to those in the world who would come, but who for some reason can't. And then at other times, that call to feed Jesus' sheep takes on a very literal sense as we offer food to those who do not have easy or regular access to food. We share with those who are struggling. We share with those who are hungry. We share simply because they have a need. And we have ways of doing that both through our congregation and through the resources in our community, such as bridging the gap 
and other places here that help us care for those who are in need here in our community, right around our church. This too is part of our command to feed the sheep. And so as we prepare to go forth this day to return to our day-to-day -day lives, let us consider the ways that we can follow that call to feed those whom Jesus loves. In doing so, we remember that this command to feed others is intimately tied to our love of Jesus. The commands that Jesus gave to Peter were always followed when the question of Peter's love for Jesus. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. If you love me, you will feed others. Sometimes we break it down to just blind obedience. But if it's disconnected from God's love, if it's disconnected from our love for Jesus, then it falls short of that relationship of the Good Shepherd to His sheep. It falls short of the example that Jesus gives to us over and over in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. It falls short of all that Jesus taught us about loving God and loving one another. And yet at the same time, participating in that simple act of feeding others because they are in need is exactly one way in which we show our love for Jesus. We show our love for Jesus through our praise and our worship. We show our love for Jesus in our times of prayer. And we show our love for Jesus when we follow his commands to love and feed others. As Jesus shows us and teaches us over and over, this love of others is shown when we meet the physical needs of others. We love our neighbor when we heal them when they are sick. We love our neighbors when we feed them when they are hungry. We love our neighbors when we see and act as if their well-being is just as important as ours. And we show, we show in our love of our neighbors our love for Jesus. And so when we leave this week, let us consider the ways that we show others the body of Christ, the ways in which we share our love of Jesus when we meet the needs of others. Let us prepare to go forth and to feed his sheep.